In your Bible today, the book of Genesis, we will return there after a couple of weeks away, and chapter number 8, Genesis chapter number 8. Now, when I announce the title of this message, I don't want you to get nervous. Does the Bible address climate change? Oh, boy, have I stepped into a quagmire this morning, huh? Don't worry, we are not going to become a social justice church. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> you probably would, um, you would probably expect to hear a title like that. It's a mainline type church. It's a little to the left of us. Everybody's to the left of us. But uh, you, you probably wouldn't expect to hear that. But uh, I've always operated on this idea that whatever comes up in the text, I need to address it. And so if the Bible speaks to it, why should we not speak to it? And so I just ran head on into it this week. In Genesis chapter 8, would you stand as we read the Word of God, please? And uh, we'll talk about this subject. Genesis 8 and verse 15. God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee, Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast that was on the ark, every creeping thing, every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds, they went forth out of the ark. And Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. And then our verse, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and cold and cold and heat and summer and winter and winter and day and night shall not cease. Thank you. You may be seated. And so the flood, the flood waters receded, and Noah stepped out into a different world. I painted you a pretty dismal picture of it in the last message because I wanted you to just feel the devastation of a flood like the Bible describes here in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, I understand that he sent out a raven who never came back because the raven could eat the carcasses of things that other birds may not eat. I understand that he sent out a dove, and in fact, he sent it out three times, and that the dove finally came back with a little twig in its mouth. But that, my point is, the world was devastated. It was absolutely desolate. And yes, there were some bushes that were sprouting now and some Thing, vegetation was coming to life, but 
The world was in a terrible state of desolation. There was just nothing. And great changes had occurred in the earth. The water canopy, the waters that were above the heavens in Genesis chapter 1, that canopy that had protected the earth from ultraviolet rays and created the longevity of life, that canopy now was gone, and it would be gone forever. And so huge quantities of water had come up out of the caverns of the deep, as the Bible refers to them, and had come down from the water above the heavens. And now, no doubt, the oceans were, uh, had huge quantities of water they did not have before. Most creationist scientists believe that there was only one ocean before the flood and that everything was sort of reconfigured on the surface of the earth because of the flood. And so today we have 71% of the surface of the earth is covered in water. Only about a third of the earth even is land. That changed, we believe, at that time. We now have a hydrological cycle where evaporation up forming clouds, the winds blow them across, temperature changes, causes, causes rain, and then we have that fall into the earth and it goes into the rivers and streams and ultimately back into the ocean. The cycle repeats itself over and over. We also believe that buried deep under the surface of the earth was the vegetation from before the flood. And uh, the theory of creationist scientists is that it formed our coal and oil and gas beds that we have so, uh, uh, so uh, scattered across the surface of the earth. And I preached, I think, the last time on Noah there in verse number 20. The very first thing that he did was to recognize God and so, in verse 20, it says that he built an altar and he worshiped. Now, what a statement about what is important. What a statement about priorities. The very first thing he did after over a year on this ark was to stop and worship God. Boy, he needed to plant gardens and fields. He needed to build a house and shelter. But priority number one with him, it was, I need to worship God. If you look in verse 21, you'll find God's response. The Lord was pleased, the Word says. He was pleased with what had happened there. He smelled a sweet savor. And he says in response to Noah, Noah, first of all, there's not going to be any more curses upon the ground. The original one from Genesis 3 will remain, but there's not going to be any more curses, and so you don't need to worry about that. Man's heart is still evil, it says there in verse 21. And then God said, there's not going to be any more universal floods ever again. And so God then makes this promise, and the promise is in verse 22, while the earth remaineth, seed time, that's spring, and harvest, fall, and cold weather, and heat in the summer, and summer, and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So God has promised us here these weather cycles that He set in motion are always going to continue. 
Now, that is the underlying premise of what we believe as Bible-believing Christians, that the weather cycles are in the hands of God, and God said there's always going to be these cycles. Now, there's a lot of room within those cycles for variation, obviously. When it says summer, well, it didn't say how hot summer might be or how cold summer might or how cold the winter might be. There could be great temperature variation, but there is going to be a distinction of the seasons. I, I don't know how many times I've heard in my ministry here, people would say something like this, Brother Bill, you know at the end of time, why we're not going to, the Bible says we're not going to be able to tell which season it is. <laughs> well, no, I don't know that. The Bible says exactly the opposite. The Bible says as long as time is going to endure, there's going to be weather cycles, summer and winter, cold and hot. Now, when I read that, though, and begin to think through the implications of that, it brings me head on with perhaps the greatest issue of our day, and that's why I have to preach on it. And it's the issue of climate change or global warming or whatever you choose to call it. And climate change, and I'm using a definition I picked up from one of their sites, is a worldwide change in weather patterns causing the earth to warm. A worldwide change in weather patterns causing the earth to warm. And the theory is this, that man is causing the climate to change around the world by burning fossil fuels. And these fuels, when they're burned, they release CO2, carbon dioxide. They release it into the atmosphere, and that forms a, a gaseous vapor, or a gaseous uh, formation there that keeps the heat in. It holds the sun's heat. And it's true, it is a fact, that global surface temperatures are increasing. They've increased about one degree in, since the mid-20th century. That'd be about 50 years ago now. And the people who advocate this tell us about cataclysmic predictions. The temperature is going to increase across the world. The ice caps are going to melt. The seas are going to rise. And uh, the coastal cities, Miami and Myrtle Beach, New York, are going to be covered in water. I heard that, and I decided I'm keeping my Florence property. It's going to be beachfront one of these days. It's going to increase in value astronomically. And so um, that's what they tell us. And it stirred such fear and panic. I read about little children now that are panic-stricken because they've been told that uh, they may not live out their lives because of this. Al Gore made a movie and wrote a book and made a lot of money talking about an inconvenient truth. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, better known as AOC, told us three years ago we got 12 years to fix it or we're going to all, it's over. And so that means we got nine years now. And um, Greta Thunberg is a little 16-year-old Swedish girl, always kind of speaking hysterically. 
Time magazine named her the person of the year in 2019. Isn't that incredible? Of all the great people doing great things across the planet, a 16-year-old teenager who, whose message is throbbing with emotion and uh, his, on the verge of hysteria every time you hear, she's the person of the year. So somebody's really wanting to push this viewpoint, undoubtedly. And then the day that our current president was elected, he shut down all the pipelines in the country. And gas went over $5 a gallon. It's come down a little bit because we're using the reserves for emergency use. And at some point, it'll probably go back up. And so I just thought I would encourage you a little bit today with <laughs> make your day here. Well, they tell us the solution is to cut fossil fuel use. We can't have any coal-burning power plants anymore. We're, we all have to buy an electric car. Uh, we're going to use solar and wind energy in the future. And I, by the way, I'm not opposed to any of that. I use, use it in whatever form you can. We're not opposed to that. If, but the whole thing has stirred such fear and angst in people. And all this emphasis on carbon dioxide, it occurred to me as I was preparing the message, didn't God create carbon dioxide? Um, is God opposed to carbon dioxide? It's now the number one pollutant in the world. And I, I thought I learned in biology in ninth grade that the plants feed off of the carbon dioxide that we breathe out, and they give off oxygen, and we kind of support each. Did y'all ever hear that? You didn't in the last five years because now CO2 is the great enemy of mankind. And the scientists, though, tell us that the greatest greenhouse gas is not carbon dioxide, it's water vapor. That 60 to 90 percent of the greenhouse gases that hold in heat are water vapor that we don't control or can't control ever. Now, listen to me today. Don't ignore what I'm saying because a lot of people say, ah, I'm not interested in that stuff. I can tell you what I'm speaking about this morning is going to personally affect you and your pocketbook. Every one of us, in a significant way, it's already doing it by the inflation that has been caused by the energy crisis, whatever. And every solution that is being proposed, I hope you understand, takes away from people's individual freedom. And that's my concern. Every solution limits somebody's freedom. Whoever controls the energy controls the economy. And you see that at the grocery store. I went yesterday afternoon to buy groceries. It cost me $70 to buy everything that I carried in one hand. I had three or four bags, but I mean, it was unbelievable. And then whoever controls the energy controls agriculture, what we eat. The prices of fertilizer have gone sky high. Talk to our farmers here because fertilizer is a form of energy. 
And there's talk of food shortages, and I hope that doesn't happen, but I know there are problems. They tell us we even have to get rid of the cows because they produce CO2. I am not giving up my hamburger or my milk and my cheese. And then whoever controls energy controls transportation. Every form of major transportation that brings your food and all the resources you need in life is based on diesel power. It's not just the 18-wheelers that run on diesel. It's the airplanes. It's the ships. All the ships that cross the sea run on diesel. It's the railroad engines that burn diesel. You and I are going to be affected. You say, well, I didn't know you had any credentials to speak on this. Well, I'm not a scientist, but I have the same credentials as AOC. It was a bartender until she got elected to Congress. I might even be as qualified as the current president to talk about it. Who knows? Who knows? At least I'm basing mine on the Bible. I'll base the rest of mine on the Bible. Genesis 1.1, if you're taking notes with me, God created the universe and he made man his steward. God created the entire uh, universe. We start there. And that's our premise. And then he made man his steward. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the universe. Look down in verse 30, if you're following in your Bible, he called it all good. He pronounced it good. Everything was very good, in fact, he said there. And then he made man his steward. I want to read a couple of verses with you. Turn to Genesis 1. He gave man stewardship over the universe. Chapter 1 and verse 27, God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, every living thing. In other words, dominion means to rule, to take charge, to care for, Every living thing upon the earth, God said here. And then in that, he said, man, you're not autonomous. You're not on your own. You rule, but you rule under my authority, and I'm giving you some responsibilities. And so he told Adam, I want you to name the animals and all the living creatures. Do you know there's an entire branch of science? It is called taxonomy. And taxonomy is the classification and naming of all living things. So you could really say that Adam was the first scientist because he's naming and classifying everything that God had made. And so we would say that he's a steward. A steward is one who looks after the affairs of another. And Adam is put in charge of this planet over every living thing. Here the Scripture says, to care for the earth, its creatures, its resources. But this is very important. Continue with me in verse 29. And God said, I have given you, now note that in your Bible, man is not an intruder on this planet, as the extreme environmentalists 
doctrine of our day would say. Man is not an intruder on the planet. The planet was made for him. I have given you, Adam, every herb-bearing seed upon the face of all the earth. Every tree is for you, Adam, in the which of the fruit of the tree yielding seed to you shall be for your food, your meat. And every beast of the earth and every fowl, every bird in the sky, and everything that creepeth upon the ground, the earth wherein there is life, I have given to you for meat, food. The earth, you are not an intruder on the earth. I made the earth and everything in it for you. You're the steward over the earth. You're to care for the earth. And God pronounced it all good in verse number 30 there. Go down to chapter 2, verse 15. He reemphasizes that the Lord God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden, and his purpose to dress it and to keep it. He's a steward over that garden. And so God made the oil. God made the gas, God made the coal, God made the metals, God made the timber, God made the animals, the birds, the fish, and the CO2. And God gave it to him and said, you are to have dominion over all of this. You are my steward. What does a steward do? A steward doesn't waste things. A steward takes care of things. A steward seeks to please God and remembers that he's not autonomous. He's accountable to Almighty God for everything that he has and everything that he does. But man failed, point two. Point one is God created the universe and gave man, or made man his steward. And point two is man has failed in his stewardship of the earth. And in his selfishness, we Christians ought to understand there is, there is a legitimate concern about the earth and about the environment because God put us in charge of it. And man abused, has abused the earth now. Chemical dumps and burning the rainforest and sewage in the rivers and dumping barge loads of garbage into the seas. This is not what God intended for the earth to be. And so I understand there is a very, very legitimate environmental concern that every Christian ought to have because it represents our stewardship of this planet. God put us in charge of it, not to destroy it, not to waste it, not to abuse it, but, but to tend it and dress it, as he said in Genesis 2.15, to care for it. So, in that sense, I'm an environmentalist. And man has not done a very good job. Isaiah 24 and 5, the earth is defiled. Same word, by the way, if you look it up, is polluted. Isaiah the prophet said, 24 and 5, the earth is polluted by the inhabitants thereof. So, God recognizes we've not done a very good job. Jeremiah recognized the same thing. He wrote about it in Jeremiah chapter 2. And so you, if you go to China today, vast areas of the land is unusable. Vast areas have been strip-mined 
to get the lithium for the batteries. The rivers are so polluted. The air quality in Beijing, that's a daytime picture. The smog, it looks like it's nighttime so often because of the pollution in the air there. People have a right to be legitimately concerned about things like that. We've got to live here. We've got to pass this on to our children. I read about a young man graduated from college, and his family gave him a, a, a trip to uh, Egypt. And he wanted to go to Egypt. And so he and a few college buddies uh, got on a plane, went over to Egypt, and they were in Cairo, and they were looking at the uh, Nile River, and he had heard about it all his life. He said, I'm going to take a swim in the Nile. He has jumped in, you know, college boy. And he got sick. And they put him in the hospital. He was so sick, he was about to die. And when they did all the tests and everything, it was the pollution. And that great river that we read about so often in our Bible. I was in Kenya quite a few years ago now. And I remember walking beside these ditches full of open sewage everywhere. It was awful. Well, that's not the way God intended us. That's not taking care of His garden. That's not what a Christians, we've got to get a balance in our thinking on this. We can't let the radical direction of some people determine ours. But let me tell you, here's why the radicalism developed. Turn in your Bible, Romans chapter 1, and I want you to read it with me. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. And it's a familiar passage, but oh, does it describe life on the planet today. Verse 21, Romans 1, because that when they, the people of the earth, knew God back when, they glorified Him not as God. They were not thankful. They became vain in their imaginations, or you could say reasoning. Their reasoning powers became vain. Their foolish heart was darkened. They professed themselves to be wise. Oh, we've got all this knowledge. But they became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a man, in other words, an idol, and idols that look like birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And God gave them up to the uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies. They changed the truth, the truth of Genesis, the truth of God, they changed it into a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature. Put a circle around the word creature. It refers to the earth, the creature, the creatures that God created, and that would include the earth. They worshiped and they served the creation, the creation, more than they did the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What a phrase. They worshiped the creation the universe, rather than the Creator. There's a name for that worship. We call it pantheism. Pan, every, theist, theist God, pantheism. Everything is God, all is God. The doctrine that the universe as a whole 
is God and that there is no God but the combined forces of nature, its laws, its substances, and so on. That's pantheism. Hinduism, the Hindu, Hindu religion is 100% pantheistic. Much of Buddhism is pantheistic. The New Age movement in our country is pantheistic. Everything is God. God is in you. God is in everything. But there is no personal God as you and I worship from our Bible. And like every other heresy, it's rooted in the misunderstanding of the nature of God. Every single heresy you will ever encounter in the world, in history, it's always been true. It will continue to be true. It's, it's based on a lack of understanding of what the Bible teaches about God. So you see, God is not the universe. The earth is not our mother. God is our father. The earth is not your mother. Earth Day is essentially worship of pantheistic gods. God created the universe, and he's separate from it. He's not a part of it. He spoke it into existence. It came from him, but he is not a part of the earth. We call that in classical theology the transcendence of God. God is transcendent, transcendent. He is above everything else. He, he is overall. He is higher than. He is greater than. He knows more than anybody or anything else. He is transcendent. He is God Almighty. There is none like Him. And the environmental movement is a pantheistic movement. It worships the earth, the universe, and there is no higher power. It's based upon the idea of evolution, that all this came into being without any guiding hand, without a, without a deity. And so, therefore, today, there's no higher power, there's no transcendent God, and they've even come to the point now where earth would be better off without man. You often read that in their literature. Have you ever wondered why abortion is pushed so radically, so aggressively in America and in the Western world? You don't have it in the places that are undeveloped. They, you don't, they don't even permit it in most of those countries. You wonder why they're so aggressive and they will, they're relentless about all this? It's because they really believe that the earth is better off with fewer people. It's a matter of population control, abortion. And we're having the debate right now in our Senate here in the state of South Carolina. One of the World Economic Forum leaders in the Great Reset literature says, the sustainability of earth is about one billion people. We have seven and a half billion now. You know what? Those words should put chills on your arm. He's saying we'd be better off with about six and a half billion fewer humans on this planet. So is climate change a reality or is it a catalyst for 
global control. That's where I would have to come. And the scientists are divided. Now, to be honest, I don't know if the earth, I don't know if there's, I, there could be some global warming. I don't know. But I'm not a bit worried about it. And I'll tell you why in a moment. I'm not, gonna, I'm not a, a, a global warming denier. I just don't know. Do, who does know? The opinion is so divided. Let me show you something I pulled up out of my memory bank in my file the other day. Forty years ago, Time magazine put covers on three different years in succession, and their covers were the big freeze, December the 3rd, 1973. January 1977, the big freeze, a second cover, and the cooling of America, December the 24th, their Christmas present to us in 1979. That was the big thing they were concerned about. And uh, all the scientists were talking about global cooling. And then Newsweek in April 1975, April 1975, has a long, long article on it here. And uh, the science editor at Newsweek was a man named Peter Gwynn, and he wrote The Cooling World, in which he predicted, listen to this, there's going to be famine because it's going to be too cold to grow crops. And he says, and I'm quoting from that article up there, meteorologists are hard-pressed to keep up with the evidence. A few years later, they had to retract the whole thing. The evidence he relied on has since been disproved. So, who are we to believe? I mean, we're not scientists. We don't know. We hear all this contradictory and conflicting opinion, but climate change legislation, I believe, is a key factor in the plan for global governance, and they use that term. I'm using their terminology, global governance, meaning there needs, we need to be moving toward a one-world government, a one-world economy, and a one-world religion. Read about it. Revelation 13, that Satan will empower a man, and that man will have supernatural powers as no man has ever had other than Christ. And he will bring together the governments, the peoples of the world. He will be a unifier like no man has ever been a unifier. And people will clamor around him, and they'll form a one-world political system a one-world economic system, and a one-world religion, they, in fact, will worship Him. I speak of the Antichrist. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Look up here. If you didn't hear another thing. Global warming is not in control. God is in control. God is in control. He has, not, he has not abrogated his promise of Genesis 8 and 22. I repeated the word cold when I read the text and winter because it's always going to be cold at times and places, and it's always going to be warm at times and places. And God is the one who is in control. 
people are more important to God than the environment. You know that? Yes, he created this beautiful world, but he created it for people. And listen to me. He cares about people. He cares about you. He says, if a sparrow can't fall to the ground without God noticing and caring, Jesus said, how much more would your heavenly Father care about you and the concerns you have in life? And so I don't know if the planet's warming or cooling, or I don't know what the planet's doing. That's in God's prerogatives. But I know this, God is in control today. And you know what? He told you and me not to worry about it, not to be perplexed about it. In fact, the phrase, fear not, occurs in your English Bible 365 times. Isn't that great? That's one for every day in the year. Fear not. Every day you could get up, and if you can look in your Bible, and you can find a different fear not. God is not the author of fear. God is the author of peace and love and joy in your life if you know Him. And so, I'm not going to go to bed tonight and worry about the, the ice caps melting. That's, that's, that's under the control of Almighty God. I am going to go to bed tonight and praising the Lord for His sovereign control of this universe. Now, he does have a global warming plan, though. So in 2 Peter, we're going to close by reading about it here today, okay? And I put them up here for you so it won't even have to turn. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and, there, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. There's global warming. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that all these things on the earth, the planet will be dissolved because God's going to renovate it. What manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation or living in godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire, there's more global warming, they shall be dissolved. The elements, you know what the elements are, don't you? You studied in the table of elements, the basic building blocks of everything. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, are looking for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And you turn to Revelation, and you find out where that new heaven and that new earth is. Will you turn there with me right quick? We didn't write that one out, I don't think. But it's in Revelation chapter 21. And he says, we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21 and 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven the one, and the first earth where we're living right now were passed away, completely changed, and there was no more sea. And in verse 5, he that sat upon the throne said, I make all things new. And chapter 22, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. No pollution there. Proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb and in the midst of the street and on either side of the river was a tree of life that bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded a different fruit every month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there was no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they will see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads, and the cycles will be changed. There shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign with Him forever and ever. Stand to your feet with me in prayer, please. <clears throat>